Our scripture reading uh, for tonight is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, beginning to read Genesis uh, 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the truth? of the fruit of the tree which I command you do not eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me uh, fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would protect us from the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. There are some in this room that are servants of the devil, and I pray that they would be freed, restrained, and freed. And I pray that you would help us to lift the shield of faith and quench the fiery darts of the evil one which fly in this room right now. And I pray that your people would be given great courage. And that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. I praise you, Lord Jesus, because you have triumphed over the devil. And the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Help me to be faithful to your word now. And may your word have a saving and strengthening effect, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to Genesis chapter 3, through 1 and 2, it looks as though all is 
well. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. God did not create anything evil. And suddenly, beginning of chapter 3, there is a serpent. And he's evil. He's calling God's word into question. Verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? He's devious. He's deceitful. He's destructive. God had said in 2.17, Genesis 2.17, the day you eat of it, this tree, you'll surely die. And he says in verse 4, this serpent says in verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Jesus, many years later, says that this being is a murderer and a liar. John eight forty four. He's a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So, who is he? Who is it? What? What, what are they talking about? The verse in the Bible that gives the fullest answer is Revelation 12:9, which goes like this. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's a very big, full designation of who's being spoken of in Genesis 3, that ancient serpent. He's the devil. The word devil means slanderer. And he's a Satan. The word Satan means accuser. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus calls him the evil one. The Pharisees call him Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Paul calls him the God of this age and the prince of the power of the air. So that's who we meet in Genesis chapter 3. And he's already evil. He's already a deceiver. He's already a murderer trying to get these people killed with him when he appears in the garden. Now, having swept humanity into sin, which we've been paying the price for ever since, God addresses the serpent in verse 15. Here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So at first, when you're reading this verse, it looks as though the warfare is going to be between two offsprings. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. 
But when you read the next word, something very different emerges. He shall bruise your head. Who's he? Her offspring. Who's your? Not his offspring. Not the serpent's offspring. The serpent. That's very important to see. There is going to be warfare between seed of woman, seed of serpent. It's been happening ever since. That's not where the decisive victory will be wrought. The decisive victory will be wrought between he, her offspring, will crush your, not your offspring, your head. You're going to be alive in 10,000 years. And you will be destroyed by her offspring. The day is coming, God says, when the offspring of the woman will crush your head, serpent. The decisive blow will be struck, and we know now, we read it, Colossians chapter 2. Jesus was the perfect offspring of the woman. He's the only offspring of the woman who had the power, had the perfection, and had the obedience to go to the cross where Satan was undone. So Christ Jesus died on the cross, and in dying on the cross, destroyed the devil. Let me read these crucial verses that we read earlier. Colossians 2.14. The record of debt that stood against us. Everybody in this room has done evil. There's a record in heaven of all your sins. If it is not dealt with in some way, it will be read at the last judgment and you will be sentenced to hell. Every one of us. So what happens to that bill, that list? It's a very long list. There are things go on it every day. What happened to it? And that verse says, the record of debts that stood against us, Christ set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Christ died for our sins, here's what happened. He took out of the hand of the devil the one weapon with which he can finally destroy us. There's only one weapon he has, and that is the valid accusation that our sins will damn us as unforgiven so that we perish with him. If he can make a valid accusation before the throne and the judge of the universe that we sinned and deserve to be destroyed with him, he wins. And what happened at the cross? If you ever wonder, why why did it take an incarnation so that there would be a perfect seed offspring of the woman? And why did he get the victory by dying. I mean, just kill him. He's the devil. 
No, it wouldn't work that way because that would leave us with a bill, a record of sins in our hands with which the devil would just take it out of our hands, shake it in God's face and say, they're mine. Send them to hell with me because here's their sins. So if Jesus just cleaned house, we'd still have our sins. And so he dies. And in dying in our place, Satan loses the one weapon, unforgiven sin, with which he could damn us. So, like I've said before, and little children remember it, so I'll say it again, all Satan can do is gum us because his fangs have been removed. And he can kill you with his gums, but he cannot damn you with his gums. The poison is gone. Now, here's the question. Where did he come from? Why does God tolerate this murderous behavior still 2,000 years after the cross? In Genesis, it appears that all's well. He creates everything good, and then you have evil. Something happened. What happened? If God didn't create evil, what happened? There are clues, and I think they're only clues, but they're pretty clear. Two verses, Jude 1, 6, 2 Peter 2, 4. I'll read them to you. Jude Verse 6, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude says this. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Angels who did not keep their position of authority, but left it. 2 Peter 2.4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So it appears that there were once a great host of holy angels, holy angels, and they did not stay in their own position of authority. They sinned. And that sin was a kind of insurrection. They didn't want to be subordinate. They wanted to be self-exalting, and they thought self-governing. And they were evicted from heaven into hell, and evidently they have some measure of liberty, though not absolute liberty now to hurt. And it leaves another question. Why? How did that happen? 
That's not an easy question to answer. In fact, the ultimate biblical answer, the ultimate final biblical answer, raises more questions. It doesn't end questions. Raises questions. Seems to me that the way you approach such things is to acknowledge you see in a mirror dimly. Now we know in part, then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And we acknowledge that all of our questions probably will not be answered in this age. But we ask them anyway. And then we seek answers in the Bible. Why did they fall? Why did they sin? Now, some people find help in saying that the angels had free will and that God, therefore, could not exert enough influence to hold their allegiance or keep them adoring him. I do not find that a helpful answer for several reasons. It doesn't answer the question why a perfectly holy angel in the presence of an infinitely holy and beautiful and attractive God would suddenly use his free will to hate God. It's no answer. To say they have free will is no answer. It also runs into some great difficulties as to the way the Bible describes God's relationship to the devil and to the demons. So I'm not helped by that answer. And here's the way I go about trying to answer the question, if it can be answered. I begin to read the whole Bible asking this question. What does the Bible present to us through the whole range of redemptive history from beginning to end as the way God relates to Satan's will. I don't want to just speculate. I just want pictures. I want Bible verses. I want Bible statements about how God relates to Satan. And then maybe seeing enough ways that God relates to Satan, I could project back and say, well, if he relates to him that way here, he related to him that way there. That's my approach. And you can assess whether you think that's a wise approach. So what I want to do is just give you seven or eight glimpses of how God relates to, to Satan in the Bible. Number one, Satan is called the ruler of this world in John twelve thirty one. However, other texts say things like this, Daniel four seventeen. The Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. Or Psalm 33, 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. From which I infer, yes, Satan is the God of this world and the ruler of this age, but not Ultimately, he is a lackey with a leash underneath this great God who decides who kings are and when they're done. Number two, though unclean spirits are everywhere in the world, 
doing deceptive and murderous things, Jesus Christ is described as having all authority in heaven and on earth. And then you get an amazing statement like this, clearly spoken as the truth about Jesus in Mark 1.27. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You should think a long time about that. (laughs) When Jesus speaks with absolute authority, the devil does what he is told. Period. Right? That's what it says. There aren't seasons when Jesus is not authoritative and seasons when he is authoritative. If it says in the Bible, Jesus commands the unclean spirits and they obey, they obey whenever he speaks that way. That's number two. Number three, Satan is described as a roaring lion, prowling and seeking to devour people. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the whole world. In other words, the jaws of the lion are suffering. Resist, he's prowling around like a lion seeking to devour people. Resist him firm in your faith because you know that the same experience of suffering is being experienced by your brethren around the world. Therefore, the suffering of Christians in Afghanistan, 15 of them left, right? There's way more. They're just in the news. The suffering is the the jaws of the lion coming down on them. Satan's real. Don't mess with him. And then you read these words in the same book, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. If God should will. The jaws will close and not before. God will decide whether they get out. Not the devil, ultimately. Number four, Satan is a murderer. From beginning to end, he's a murderer. Jesus said so. Has the devil, since his fall, taken out of the hand of the Almighty... The gift of life and death. He has not. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now, says the Lord, I, I am he and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. And you remember the book of James? James 4.15, don't say, I will go up to such and such a town, spend a year there and get gain. What is your life? It's a vapor. 
You don't know about tomorrow. Rather say, if the Lord wills, I will live and get gain. And if he doesn't, I won't. If I make it home tonight, God got me home. And if I have a heart attack on the way home, God took me home. So, yes, Satan is a murderer. But he does not have ultimate say on whom he murders. God does. Number five, Job. When Satan wants to destroy a saint, Satan's really stupid. When he wants to destroy a saint, he must get permission before he touches him. So he comes to God and says, Job only worships you because he's rich. If I take his camels, donkeys, servants, he'll curse you. And God gives him permission, but he puts a limit. Don't you touch his body. So he kills them all. Job falls on his face. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Lord. Satan has to get permission to go after his body and he gets it. But don't you kill him. Isn't that remarkable? So Satan does harm to us. Oh, he does, but not without God's say. Number six, Satan is a great tempter in your life. He'll tempt you before you go to bed tonight. He wants you to sin more than he wants anything. Gets you sinning and sinning and sinning so that you make shipwreck of your life. He was behind, the Bible says clearly, and you all know this, he was behind the three, tem- the three denials of Peter. However, somebody else was also there behind them. Let me read you these amazing words. From Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Just like Satan coming to God in the case of Job, he came to God in the case of Peter. Satan has demanded that he might sift you like wheat. What that means is he wants to take Peter and through some kind of fear or sin, Squish him through the grate so that Peter comes out here and faith stays there. You got a faithless Peter with faith sifted out. That's what was going on that night. Get faith out of this guy. Make him really afraid. Take all faith out of his life. That's what Satan designed to do. Let me keep reading. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When... You have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. He did not say, if you turn again, I hope you'll be a strengthener. He was sovereign over Satan's designs right there. I'm praying for you, Peter. I have interceded with the almighty God and we have decided you will deny me three times. No more. You will cry, and when you cry, you will repent. And when you repent, you will become a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
Number seven, finally. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So Satan is a great blinder. Some of you in this room right now are spiritually blind. Meaning you're listening to me and this message right now means nothing to you. You just want to get out of here. Because Satan has blinded your mind. You have no spiritual taste buds. Truth, like what I'm speaking here, doesn't do anything. might make you mad, but it doesn't surely awaken worship or passion or zeal or love or resolve to obey. That's a spiritual work of God. And Satan is a great blinder. The question is, is he ultimately powerful in his blinding? Or does God have final say? whether light breaks into your life. Two verses later, verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians says this, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God resolves to make lights go on in your heart, no devil can stop him. So those are seven glimpses. I could multiply them over and over again. So here I am back at my question about the origin of Satan's sinfulness. Is God helpless before the will of his own angels? Is there power outside God himself, outside of him, which limits his rule over them. My conclusion is that from cover to cover, this book presents God as governing Satan in all he does. No exceptions. And therefore, I would never, ever, biblically extrapolate, infer, back into eternity and say, Satan got the upper hand or God was helpless. God couldn't exert enough influence to win this guy's allegiance. Like he could get yours, but he couldn't get Satan's. No. God holds sway over the wheels of his angels. He commands evil spirits and they obey him. Therefore, if they disobey, he ordained that they disobey. He permitted them to disobey. If God permits Satan's fall, it isn't because he's helpless. It's because he's got a purpose for it. Which is why the title of these seven messages is what it is. The spectacular sins and the global purpose of God in glorifying Christ through them. What's his purpose? If he chooses to permit something, he does so for a reason. Just mark that. If he chooses to permit something, he does so for a reason. He's not a willy-nilly God. He doesn't drop the ball. He never says, oops. When he permits a thing, he knows he's going to permit it. He designs and he moves. And he has purposes. God is sovereign over Satan. 
and therefore Satan's will does not move without God's permission, and therefore every move of Satan is part of God's overall plan and purpose. Every move. So, question. Why, if he has that authority, doesn't he just wipe him out? He's going to do it. Revelation 20, verse 10. He takes Satan and casts him into the lake of fire so that he has no effect on anyone anymore on the renewed earth. He's going to do that. Why not now? Or why not the moment after he fell? Why didn't God cast Satan into the lake of fire 30 seconds after the rebellion started? We saw the ultimate answer last week. That's why I started with Colossians 1.16. All things were created, including Satan, through Christ and for Christ. For Christ. For the glory of Christ. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be honored more highly because of the way he defeats Satan through long-suffering, patience, humility, servanthood, suffering, and death, rather than raw power. In other words, the whole of the history of redemption, climaxing in the death of Jesus on the cross to nullify the work of Satan, will bring more glory to Jesus Christ than if he had simply executed Satan 30 seconds after the rebellion started. There is a certain glory that comes to a conqueror through raw power. There is more glory that comes to a conqueror when he conquers in such a way that he wins people's hearts by dying in their place. And thus proves himself in the experience of those people to have their allegiance because he's beautifully worthy of that allegiance, not because he took it by raw power. He wins us by the display of his sacrificial life. God knows how to get glory for his son. And it takes 2,000 years of redemptive history and 2,000 years of church life with all of its imperfections to maximize the glory that Jesus Christ is meant to get in this creation. So I close with this application. What are we supposed to do with evil? This is very important because there are people... I am told, like me, who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over the devil so that the devil never has the upper hand. And God remains God at every moment and in every place, totally sovereign, allowing what he allows, doing what he does for totally wise purposes. There are people like me who draw, I am told, the inference, evil's not so serious then. And surely you wouldn't want to fight evil because 
you might be found fighting God. Well, hear, hear the last three minutes of this sermon. There are eight things you should do with evil and four things you should never do with evil. Number one, I'll just tick them off. Number one, expect evil. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you, 1 Peter 4.12. Number two, endure evil. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, 1 Corinthians 13.7. Third, give thanks for the refining effect of evil that comes against you. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always for everything to God the Father. Number four, hate evil. Romans 12.9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Number five, pray for escape from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Number six, expose evil. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Number seven, overcome evil with good. Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Number eight, resist evil. Fight evil. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But, on the other hand, the closing four things you should never do with evil. Number one, never despair that evil is out of God's control. Never despair that evil is out of God's control. Ephesians 1:11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Number two, never give in to the sense that because of random evil, life is absurd and meaningless. That's a great temptation if you read world history. World history is a conveyor belt of corpses horribly (coughs) murdered corpses. We're not naive about how much evil there is in the world. At least we try not to be. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Never give in to the sense that because of what appears like horribly random evil, life is absurd. Number three. Never yield to the thought that God sins or is unjust or is unrighteous in how he governs the world. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Psalm 145, verse 17. And finally, never doubt. Now listen carefully to this closing one. One more minute. Never doubt And I wish that could be true of every one of you. I wish it could be true of every one of you at the North Campus and at the downtown campus on Lord's Day morning. Never doubt that God is totally for you 
in Christ. If you trust him, you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, no evil befalls you but what God ordains for your good. Hard as that may seem. When he took damnation out of the devil's hands, And he nailed your sins to the cross. You know what happened in the mind of God at that moment, which he planned to happen? All of his wrath towards you was absorbed by Jesus. It's gone. If you get cancer, if you are on the bridge, if the dog attacks you, if you're 180 miners in China or one of the three rescuers here in Utah, you might be tempted to feel, he's mad at me. There's no explanation. He's mad at me. And he's not. He's absolutely not if you are in Christ. Some of us, old or young, he just wants home. We're his. We're his. He can take us whenever he wants us, however he wants to take us. We have no claim upon this life. He has a claim upon us. And I promise you, for those who this week have perished in Christ, they are very happy. So, when we renounce the designs of the devil... I hope you're all doing that in your heart right now. I hope you say in your heart right now, I renounce the devil in all his ways and all his works. I renounce him. I don't belong to him. I say no to him. I hope everybody is doing that in your mind and in your heart right now. When you renounce the designs of the devil and you trust in the power and the wisdom and the love and goodness of God, you know what happens? The supreme value of Christ is put on display. It's put on display for the principalities and powers. It's put on display for the world and the purpose of God in tolerating this demonic, murderous, deceiving being is fulfilled. In your faith and your love and your sacrifices for people. Let's pray. Father, how we praise Jesus. There is none like Jesus. One word out of Jesus' mouth and the demons obey. And we fall before him now and worship him and grieve with those who grieve in this city. In Utah, in China, in Afghanistan, South Korea, in Nepal and Bangladesh and northern India. So God, teach us the biblical effect of believing that you are supreme in all things. Your faithfulness is our standing place. 
though foes are mighty and rush upon us, our feet are firm held by your grace. 